The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the liturgical year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Joshua Guncher, and on this episode, I am joined, as always, by Father Charles McGuire of St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, thank you for being with us. Good to be here once again, Mr. Guncher. On this episode, we are going to press ahead in the liturgical year uh, to two important days on the Church's liturgical calendar one involving a whole liturgical season, and the other involving a pair of saints who uh, not only are exemplars of, 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 of womanly virtue, but um, are, are exemplars to the extent that uh, they've made their way into the Roman canon. Uh, first, we're going to be talking about Septuagesima and what the particular Sunday means, what its effects are on the liturgical year, and really what the whole of, of, of Septuagesima tide what it's supposed to do uh, in terms of the liturgical year. What is the practical effect it's supposed to have uh, on our religious lives? And, and really, in point of fact, how the liturgy even changes during that period of the liturgical year. We'll also be talking about a great feast of two early Roman martyrs, two women named Perpetua and Felicity, uh, these are early Roman martyrs who, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, have made their way into the canon of the Mass. And we we want to make sure that we cover them, not so much because of their importance and pride of place in the Roman canon, uh, but because of the virtues that these two martyrs demonstrated uh, in, in the story of their martyrdom, which is, is, is not only well-documented historically, uh, but is is quite stirring and, and, and moving as, as a tale of living out one's, one's faith until the very end. Father, I, I know we like to start the, the show with a prayer. To change things slightly, you had you decided that uh, there was a particular psalm which you found uh, suitable for the topics we were going to be discussing today. Why don't you just give a little, little background on the, uh, on, on the psalm, why you chose it, and then by all means, uh, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start with it as our prayer. Oh, absolutely. It's um, Psalm 136. And it really expresses the the spirit of the whole season of Septuagesimitide. It um, goes into the Babylonian captivity when the Jews were taken uh, away from Jerusalem and held captive in Babylon. And so it's a psalm of, of longing for Jerusalem once more. And so I would like to say this as our prayer for uh, for the help of our Lord during this uh, during this show, for ourselves and all of our listeners, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. 
Upon the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Sion. On the willows in the midst thereof, we hung up our instruments. For there they that led us into captivity required of us the words of psalms. And they that carried us away said, Sing ye to us a hymn of the songs of Sion. How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand be forgotten. Let my tongue cleave to my jaws if I do not remember thee. If I make not Jerusalem the beginning of my joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Adam in the day of Jerusalem, who say, Raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, miserable, blessed shall he be who shall repay thee thy payment, which thou hast paid us. Blessed be he that shall take and dash thy little ones against the rock. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you, Father. We start at the beginning of a radical change in the liturgical year. We're, even right now, still in the midst of Christmastide. We are still staring at Christmas trees, hopefully some of us still. Uh, we still have some lights around, maybe even some some Christmas music for the season. It's still a period of joy in the church's life. The church is still decorated for Christmas. There's still poinsettias and, um, and, and, and the Christ child is still in the crib. We are quickly going to get to that point where we have this, this radical change um, liturgically and really in the feel. You walk into a church during Christmas tide, it feels one way. You walk into a church on Septuagesima Sunday and it's different. Where's the difference, Father? Well, I think first that's that's the perfect thing about the season is it's not such a radical change. That's the purpose of of Septuagesima tide. It's to make that transition from the joys and, and celebrations of Christmas, the birth of our Savior, the Magi's following of the star, the, some of the greatest feast days within that Christmas cycle. And then the next thing, you're, you're thinking of Lent and the penances. So Septuagesimatite is a transition. So you see the wisdom of Holy Mother Church and our Lord in giving us this. It's a, it's a season of transition. There are still some, some great differences, I would say. Obviously, the we see gold on the altar all the time, the gold frontal and the gold vestments, similar things, festive things on the altar. And then you come in after the purification, and everything's purple. And The purification uh, meaning Candlemas on the second. Candlemas, which actually Septuagesima comes a day before purification this year. So it's kind of different. But in any case, everything looks a little more somber. We're starting to think of penance, so we have the purple vestments, the purple frontals. Um, you won't have as much of the fancy decorations in your church because it's it's that period of transition between, again, the joys of Christmas to now it's time to start thinking of Lent and the penances that we're going to have to do to prepare for Easter. I remember learning to drive, and, and it was on a... a learning to drive a stick on a, on a manual car. And I was always told whenever you're, you're driving a stick and you, you need to reverse, if you're going forward, 
don't just throw it in reverse or you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll drop the transmission. Um, I mean, I guess Holy Mother Church has taken a clear recognition of, of the feel, the tenor of these two seasons, and has given us this, this transition, I, I suppose, I mean, not just to prevent this from, from having a, a, a sudden, uh, perhaps, uh, an unfortunate reaction to, to Lent. I mean, going, if you told me that we're having Christmas dinner one day and then the next day I had to wake up and it was Lent, I, I would think, well, that's, 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 a, that's a real big, big shift. And I guess the church does big shifts only when it's, it's absolutely necessary. And here, she, in, her, in her wisdom, she's given us this transition, this, this, this slowing down period. Um, exactly. It's, you know, it's something like, I was thinking of this, it's something like starting your car in the winter. Our friends in North Dakota, the missions up there would understand this probably more than anyone this year, North Dakota and Minnesota, that when you're going to drive in the winter time, you don't just get in the car on, on a day that on a morning that's 20 degrees below zero, start it and go out to the highway and drive. You've got to let it warm up for it to work right and for the pistons to do what they're supposed to do and everything else. And that's sort of what we do. You know, we have to we have to adjust going into Lent. So you don't just go from having all of these festive dinners and meals and celebrations right to, okay, now it's time to fast and do all this. You have to warm up, period. Just like, uh, just like a, a car needs to warm up before it can uh, act as it's supposed to. And so for us to benefit spiritually from Lent, we have to, we have to slowly warm up. So that's what we're doing in Septuagesima. This always, I mean, this just pays yet another, another tribute to the church's consideration of, 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 of the human element. These aren't practices that are forced on us regardless of our natures. These are practices that, that, that seem that are carefully tailored mm. precisely to our natures. And the church sometimes undergoes accusations. Well, how can anyone fast that way for 40 days? Like, well, I mean, it's not that we don't get to eat, you know, <laughs> we, we get to eat something. Um, we just don't get to eat as much. And then there are those who moderate not only the quantity of the food, but the quality of the food as well. But, um, there's a human element that the church is often accused of not having. And I think having this transition period is, is certainly uh, a good example of it. So what, when does the, when does this, this particular Sunday fall? It's, it's, it's keyed to, it's keyed to Easter, which likes to move around with, within a, a particular range of dates. Mm-hmm. But uh, when does it fall, Father? Well, Septuagesima itself falls 70 days, actually, it's not quite 70, as we talked about before the show, but it's 63 days. The Septuagesima means, means 70. 70, yes. Okay. And that's why after that, you have the, the following week, which, which is Sexagesima and then Quinquagesima. So it's slowly counting down from 70 to 60 to 50. And then you, you start uh, Lent and those, those weeks of, of really harsh penance, you might say. Which they call quadragesima. Quadragesima, exactly. So, so it's the countdown from, uh, from 70 days. But why only 63 then? It's a good question. <laughs> the, the church prefers what the liturgical year says. All the liturgical year says is that the church prefers to work in round numbers rather than the exact numbers in this case. So that's that's why they will say 70. But if you go and count the calendars, you'll only count 
63. I actually I did. I mean, I knew it meant 70. And I, and I, and I remember seeing where we're, it's nine weeks away from Easter. And I thought, wait a second, that's only 63 days. And I went back and I actually paged through the calendar. I said, am I missing something here? Um, I know I come across something which, which mentioned that it um, perhaps historically it, it, um, it included in terms of its reckoning of, of number of days, it included the actual week of Easter um, and perhaps it was symbolic of the period of time of the Babylonian captivity. But uh, that's 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 a purely an academic an academic guess on my part. Um, so we've we've got this you know nine weeks before Easter. Uh, it happens on a Sunday. Um, what characterizes just liturgically? What characterizes uh, Septuagesima? I mean, we've, you've you've described what happens on the on the altar or what doesn't happen on, uh, physically on the altar. You you, you don't get the uh, perhaps the you know the the gold and the, and the, the the fancy ornamentation, but in terms of the the liturgy itself, um, or even in terms of the divine office, what do we? Where are our thoughts supposed to be here? What do we see taken away? What do we see inserted? How does how does this change the way we pray? I think let's work our way up to that. Sure. The the actual liturgical changes you might the good liturgical changes <laughs> in this case uh, the changes of the season. But we have to first know the whole spirit of the season is, as we said in the beginning, a season of longing and captivity. So you'll notice, remember, Septuagesima is not just a Sunday. It's Septuagesima tide, a whole season. Which goes through what, Father? It Which starts on Septuagesima Sunday and goes through? Goes through until Lent, okay. essentially, the beginning of Lent. So it's approximately three weeks. And we'll see different characters from the Old Testament come up on those three weeks. You have on Septuagesima Sunday, you have Adam and the whole narration of of the fall of Adam and Eve. Then you have Noah and the great flood and the fall of man and what, what made God have to do what he did. And then the third week, Quinquagesima Sunday, you we go back to Abraham. And now here, not only does the immorality of man really come up, but now you've got a new sin that never had appeared before in the history of the human race, which was idolatry and the worship of, of idols that the Jews were so known for. Um, and so you see that in our whole the whole spirit of the season is to contemplate why we're going to do all these penances. So, well, it's because Adam fell. It's because the human race at the time of Noah were terrible. And then the same with Abraham. And it's all got to be fixed. You, you have to fix those faults. We see our, our weaknesses, our sins. But the, the contemplation of these sins and our weaknesses doesn't lead to discouragement, but to action to overcome them, to set things right. And that ultimately is, here's the other connection we're making, is that all of those things that happened in the times of Adam, Noah, and Abraham made necessary what happens on Good Friday and the crucifixion of, of our God um, and the rejection of him by the Jewish people and and by the world. So 
that's why what we're thinking of. And so it's, we're thinking of our captivity. And so the liturgical, you had one interesting thought I want to, uh, to mention, and that is, as we prayed at the beginning of the show, the Babylonian captivity. So there's two cities that we're thinking of during this time, Babylon and Jerusalem. And uh, Babylon symbolizes the world of sin where Christians have to undergo a sort of probation. And so that's our whole Septuagesima and Lent, where we're going undergoing trials and probation before we enter into, um, you might say, Easter. And uh, Jerusalem symbolizes the heavenly country. So just as we go from, in this world of ours, we go from probation and trial to eternal joys. So, and Babylon went from captivity to coming back into Jerusalem and, and the joys of that. So also in this season, we're going from a, a time of penance and then we enter into Easter, which is a season of joy. So you have that whole longing for something. That's the sense of this whole season where we're really trying to gain something by it, which is ultimately um, ultimately heaven. But in any case, it's that, that sense of longing for something, which brings us to your question, which was, what's different about it? What changes in the liturgy? And that is that you say goodbye to Alleluia, which is many people, they see it and they don't think anything of it. And that's the sad thing. And I think Father Garanger in the liturgical year politely rips into people for that, that they will every year come to Septuagesimatide and they'll see that, yes, the Alleluia verse is taken out. They never hear that word. But how many people know why and how many people know the lesson? I think that's the big question. And he says, People shouldn't prepare their own private devotions. Rather, they should turn to the liturgy, learn the lessons, because the liturgy is one of the great means of sanctification, um, more, much more than private devotion. He points out because, it's because of its public nature. Exactly, exactly. And, and people have to, to remember that. You know, so many people prefer to stay at home and say their morning prayers and their rosary on a weekday even, rather than going to take play, take part in a devotional mass during the week. Well, that's good. Private devotions are good, but they should be secondary to the public ones, the liturgy of the church. And because the liturgy does that, it just teaches us lessons, It and it truly helps to develop in us the spirit of Christ. So, but going back to this, it's that, saying goodbye to the Alleluia. And that part, in, the, in the Mass, just so our listeners know specifically what we're talking about, what in the Mass disappears? Where is it? What does it look like before it's gone? Well, for instance, the, the, it is in the gradual and then the verse after that called the Alleluia verse. So the gradual comes after the epistle. Um, during every mass, and so you will not, um, you will not get 
that Alleluia verse. Let me find one here in this book. For instance, um, I'm just opening up the book to the Feast of St. Gabriel of Our Lady of Sorrows, February 27. After the gradual, you immediately have an Alleluia verse. Alleluia, Alleluia, thou hast made him a little less than the angels, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast set him over the works of thy hands, Alleluia, etc. Well, in Lent, that's replaced with the tract, and so that word Alleluia is completely omitted from the liturgy, whether it's in the Mass, whether it's in the, the breviary, you do not say it, and it's replaced with another another small prayer, it's the Laus Tibi Domine Gloria, which is essentially to say the same thing, essentially, but it's a, a little different, and we can get into that. But there's some interesting things about this. Alleluia, before we, we get into much more, St. Paul of the Cross has a, he would tell the members of his congregation to cry out Alleluia. When they're assaulted by the devils. He said because the devil is afraid of the Alleluia. Because it's a word that comes from paradise. And that's a very beautiful thing I think. And that's why the Alleluia goes away during this time. It's a word from paradise. That's St. John when he narrates the book of the apocalypse. He mentions that. That when he has the vision of heaven. He sees the the angels singing Alleluia. It's truly a word and the, the song of paradise, which brings us back to that sense of captivity. That's why it goes away. We're, we're exiles from our heavenly home. So we're we can't long, use the language. We're of longing for, exactly. And so we're changed to a more earthly prayer, which is the Laus Tibi Domine Rex Eterna Gloria, which is, Praise be to thee, O Lord, the King of eternal glory. So that's the, the language of earth. And then again, at Easter time, on Holy Saturday, it comes back to us. When we're, we've seen our Lord rise from the dead, we're thinking once more of our heavenly home. But right now, we're longing for it. So all that language goes away. It would be something like, I think of this with some of our seminarians and our priests, Father Leitoranda, who's far away from his home in Finland, um, he has to speak a new, a different language. I bet he a lot of times longs to hear his native Finnish. And it, you know, you, you think of how it must be so hard for him to speak English, American English at that, but he's got to do it. And he longs for his native Finland. And you, you spiritualize that. And same thing for us, that we should be longing for heaven. Um, so it takes us back to a play, uh, back to a time when, uh, really before the redemption, where where everything was was groaning. Um, I mean, groaning for the redeemer, and then groaning for the actual act of of redemption on the cross. I mean, if we think about the condition of mankind before uh, before Calvary. We're we're putting ourselves at least at some point in, in a period of time in which that type of hope, that type of longing for the sacrifice on the cross would, would have been something you would have been doing actively. Now we're just 
we're, we're turning our minds towards that period of time. Exactly. But for, for, for so long, that, that's the situation that everyone was in from the beginning, from the first sin until, until Calvary. Exactly. Um, that was the state of mankind. Exactly. And so we're doing just what the liturgy wants of us, and that is applying this to ourselves. It's not just a story. We read that those things in Scripture, and we have to remember it's not just a story. It's a way of life for ourselves. Just as the prophets in the Old Testament longed for our Lord, so do we. And we long, the redemption has taken place, but now we long to... Um, see it applied to ourselves in our daily way of living. We, we desire to see heaven one day. Um, Father, there's a, um, there's an antiphon that is, uh, is found in a, in, in an, in an ancient, uh, antiphonarium of, uh, St. Cornelius of Compiègne. And it actually, there's a whole history of writing about, the Alleluia, almost as though it were a person going on a trip. Um, I know that uh, uh, there are times where, where someone will, will will sort of pray that my good angel goes with me on my travels mm-hmm. uh, if I have to travel somewhere. And uh, I was particularly struck by by one of these, and, and, and they're they're beautiful. Uh, these antiphons and, and, and hymns that are directed to the Alleluia, as though it's it's a, as though it were a person. Um, this one happens to say, may the good angel of the Lord accompany thee, like someone was going on a trip. Uh, may the good angel of the Lord accompany thee, alleluia, and give thee a good journey that thou mayest come back to us in joy, alleluia, alleluia. So it's, 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 it's not referring to anyone uh, but, but the alleluia there. It's, it's, it's personifying the word and wishing it a good trip and looking forward to having it come back. When does it come back? Uh, Holy Saturday, Holy Saturday. So liturgically speaking, it ends on the Saturday before Septuagesima. So at Vespers, towards the end of Vespers, we usually say Benedicamus Domino, Deo Gratias. Well, on the Saturday before, so first Vespers of Septuagesima, we would say, Benedicamus Domino, Alleluia, Alleluia, Deo Gratias, Alleluia, Alleluia. And that's the last you hear of that word until the Alleluia comes back just uh, around the epistle time and you hear the the bishop or the priest at that mass sing Alleluia and he sings it very quietly. Then the, the choir responds. So it's sort of sneaking its way back. And then the second time you sing it, it's a little louder. And the choir responds, and the third time, even louder, like very solemn, and it's back, that sort of thing. But that's when it comes back is is Holy Saturday, which is uh, first vespers of Easter, essentially. It's funny to see how you know you have these historical hymns and antiphons, some of which are, are rather long, all dedicated to the disappearance, you know, this 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 trip that Alleluia is taking away from uh, away from the liturgy. Um, and 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 uh, and other prayers, uh, but it's been reduced. It's sort of a, it's it's a little feast of Alleluia's right there in that um, in the Benedicamus Domino um, and the and the Deo Gratias. You you stick it in as many times as you can, and then you stick it in as many times as you can again, and then that's it. It's a little a little feast, and that's the that's the only vestige that 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 type of of um, 
the type of antiphon or hymn has in the in the Roman rite anymore. Mm-hmm. Is you, you, it, it doesn't appear that way any other time during the year. And, and then all of a sudden you get it twice and then you get it two times more and then it's gone. I, you know, I want to say something real, really quickly on this an interesting practice I came across that uh, they did in the Middle Ages to, because you mentioned how in that hymn they're, they're talking to the, uh, the Alleluia, as it were. Well, the way that they would get across get this point across to the people in the Middle Ages in some places was that the clergy would have this plaque or a banner with the word Alleluia engraved on it and they'd have this solemn procession from the church to a a place in the churchyard and they would go and they would solemnly bury the, the plaque with Alleluia and it would not be seen again until, well, you guessed it, the resurrection <laughs> and when the Alleluia would come back. And that was a, an interesting way and a great way to um, illustrate to the people the, the lessons that the church is trying to teach us. So it was, uh, I was really fascinated with that. It's a, it's a stark reminder. It doesn't, it doesn't get any starker than putting something in a grave. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We want to remind you that the liturgical year is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. But that permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, the, the, the season starts. Our, our, our minds are slowly being turned towards a longing for our redemption. This is not even before Lent starts. So we have a season of preparation for a penitential season, but we're not even in the penitential season yet. And then we get the penitential season. And then only afterwards um, do we get, do we get uh, Good Friday and then, and then Easter. Um, you talked about the This, this 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 slow turning about of, of of people. You don't want that hard that hard change. Mm-hmm. The, the church doesn't stop on a dime. Right. Um, just to continue the car analogies, but we have this we have this turning back. What are some of the things that we might do uh, in in addition to uh, assisting at, at masses? In addition, perhaps even. Um, some of these practices could, could even be done at home. I think if the church isn't going to bury a little better, which is Alleluia, it certainly would seem easy enough for, um, you know, for a family on a, even, um, you know, in an evening uh, to, to, to make a banner and go and provided the ground has, has thought enough wherever you happen to be, um, you go and, and bury it perhaps with a thought of, of taking it out again uh, at some point uh, after after Holy Saturday, um, what else can we do to to kind of keep this this change going? How can we gain momentum uh, in, in this in this longing? What should we be focused on? What kind of practices should we undertake? I would say to observe the spirit of the season and the liturgy. So attend mass or at least read the masses in your your missal because they provide 
the food for thought that the church wants us to to have. That's the point of this season is to get us thinking, contemplating um, the motives for our penance, which are sin and our sin in particular. Not that it should discourage us, but lead us to action. That's the point of all contemplation is not to keep the fruits of your meditation for yourself, but to put them into action um, to help your own soul, to help the souls of others. So contemplate those things. What was it that made, made it necessary for God to become an infant in the manger, to grow for 33 years, and then to die on the cross? Those are sins. And so we have to, to contemplate that. And the whole history of the human race, Adam and the fall, again, for Sexagesima Sunday, Noah and the flood, how God wiped off, you might say, wiped immorality from the face of the earth. And then again, the idolatry of the Jews coming back to um, uh, around the time of Abraham. But remembering that we have our own form of idolatry. We, we worship not the Catholic Church, but humans being humans and fallen, uh, a fallen race, tend to worship our own false gods, whether it be a vice that we have or something like that. But start thinking, what am I going to do for Lent? What am I going to do to correct my faults? And that's the purpose of this season. This is giving direction and a, and a goal, uh, even a target, to whatever our penitential practices are going to be in Lent. That seems to be what you're, that's what you're pointing precisely out. Precisely. Yeah, to, put, to make a, a long story short, if you will. <laughs> That's it. We'd like to remind you that you're listening to the Liturgical Year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Joshua Guncher. I'm joined by Father Charles McGuire of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Today we've been discussing Septuagesima and Septuagesima Tide, um, and we're going to be discussing in the next portion of our show uh, the feast day of Saints Perpetua and Felicity. Um, these are two early Roman martyr saints, um, two women. Uh, one a noble and one a slave, uh, who died the same death at uh, nearly the same time. Um, we're going back to the, the early third century. Um, we're headed towards northern Africa uh, in what is now Tunisia. Um, in fact, there's this, uh, this, this area uh, of like, the capital of Tunis, which uh, was the seat of a, a tremendous ancient empire, uh, that of the Carthaginians. And the city Carthage was the location of a great number of, of glorious martyrdoms in the, in the early church. Um, Father, saints perpetual and felicity. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you give some background on their, on their lives. And, and ultimately um, one of the uh, moving and most stirring martyrdom stories I've, I've, I've ever read for sure. I mean, that it is one of the most interesting ones. And as we talked about before the show, it was actually the acts of these martyrs was actually written by, most of it was written by St. Perpetual herself. And then when she could no longer write because she was being pulled off to, to her death, she gave the book to another to have them finish it. And so we actually, this is one of the few 
um, narrations of, of the acts of the martyrs that we actually have from the martyr themselves, sort of autobiography. And But I want to start, before I tell the story of these saints, the what St. John Chrysostom says, he's quoted in the liturgical year for saying the following, a very beautiful thought and meditation for us all, really. He says, I feel an indescribable pleasure in reading the acts of the martyrs. But when the martyr is a woman, my enthusiasm is doubled. For the frailer the instrument, the greater is the grace, the brighter the trophy, the grander the victory. And this, not because of her weakness, but because the devil is conquered by her, by whom he once conquered us. He was conquered by a woman, and now a woman conquers him. She that was once his weapon is now his destroyer, brave and invincible. That first one sinned and died. This one died that she might not sin. Eve was flushed by a lying promise and broke the law of God. Our heroine disdained to live when the living was to depend on her breaking her faith to him who was her dearest Lord. And then he talks to us, it seems. What excuse after this for men, if they be soft and cowards, can they hope for pardon when women fought the holy battle with such brave and manly and generous hearts? Unquote. It's a very stirring um, thing that he had to say there to really stir us, especially men who tend to pride ourselves on strength and all of that to um, to recognize that we're not all as, as strong as we think ourselves to be. And we'll, we'll see what true strength is when we um, hear about this uh, martyrdom of these two great saints. Now, Father, it's, we, we learn from the very beginning of the, the acts of, of these martyrs' martyrdom that they weren't, they weren't alone in this. That, that uh, St. Perpetua actually points out that she was amongst a number of people who were, were apprehended um, she says that uh, there was someone named Rivocatus and his fellow servant, uh, Felicitas, Saturninus, and Secundulus, and Vivia Perpetua, a lady by birth and education who was married to a man of wealth. Now, I, I wonder if this isn't if this isn't referring to uh, the saint isn't inserting herself uh, in, into the list. Perhaps it was someone else, but we're, we're talking about a group of people who were captured. Um, and who were being put to the test for they're being accused of being Christians. And they're basically told you can continue as you, as you were, but you have to do something first. And this is the grain of incense needs to be offered um, to the uh, deified emperor or else. Yes. And that's, that's, what's interesting. Yeah. They were only catechumens when they were taken this whole, um, Group. The the one that was catechizing them actually was put to death first. He was he was the first to die uh, among them all. So Perpetua herself was a catechumen. She was only twenty two years old when uh, she was taken, and they lived they lived in the third century. And I'll tell this story, and I want people to really focus on the human elements 
because this story in, in this sort of autobiography, we really get a sense of what the martyrs suffered. They, they were human. That's, that's the point that we should, whenever we read the life of a saint, don't focus on miracles in which uh, we tend to do. Don't focus so much on that as much as their human elements, how they became holy despite um, all of their, their faults, their human weaknesses. Um, and St. Perpetua talks about many of the, the sufferings that she endured, the, the small things that really bothered her. Perhaps more than the, the great sufferings, the small ones bothered her most. But she had told her father that she was going to become a Christian. Well, the father didn't like it uh, because obviously the, she was his daughter, her own blood. She was young, well-educated, high-spirited, um, had a very happy disposition and a long life ahead of her. So, plus, besides that, she had her own baby son, an infant that was still nursing. And so one day she explained to her father that I must become Christian. And she pointed over to a water pot nearby and said, can you call that anything by any other name than what it is? And the father said, well, no. So she then responded, neither can I call myself by any other name than what I am, a Christian. And at that point, the father became very angry and actually threatened to pluck her eyes out and then struck her once and left. And um, they didn't see each other for days. And that was the time in which St. Perpetual was arrested. And she and four other catechumens, including the, the slave uh, named St. Felicity, they were all arrested but Perpetua was baptized just before she was taken to prison. So she actually did receive that sacrament beforehand. But then again, as I said, she gives a, a glimpse to her, the fact that she was human. She says that the, she was actually terrified by the darkness in the prison as if she were afraid of the dark. And which is true. And that was one of her great crosses. She'd never seen such darkness. And uh, it, she feared it. But eventually, after some time, the trial was arranged and announced that they were all taken. These martyrs were taken to a platform. And that's when, when she was called up, she saw her father coming again. Where was he? He was, he was coming in from the crowd. Mm -hmm. Yes. And came to her and said, this is a quote from what St. Perpetua wrote. My child, have pity on my old age. Have pity on thy father. If I, des if I de uh, deserve to be called father, think of thy brothers. Think of thy mother. Think of thy son who cannot live when you are gone. Give up this mad purpose or you will bring misery upon thy family. And to continue the quote of St. Perpetua, well, saying this, which he did out of love for me, he threw himself at my feet and wept bitterly. And I was moved to tears to see my aged parent in this grief, for I knew that he was the only one of my family that would not rejoice at my being a martyr. And then she looked at her father and said to him, I will do whatever God wants, for you know that we belong to God and not to ourselves. And 
it says that the father left with uh, great sadness in his heart. Uh, he knew that he was going to lose, lose a daughter. So the trial came about the next day, and uh, St. Perpetua says that her companions were questioned as to their faith. They professed the faith. And then, to quote St. Perpetua again, she says, My turn came next, and I immediately saw my father come towards me. So here again is the father. Uh, truly, the, the saying of our Lord in Scripture is true, that our greatest enemies are often those of our own household. And that's true here, um, even though the father did this out of what he thought was true love. But St. Perpetua says, my turn, turn came next, and I immediately saw my father come towards me, holding my infant son. So imagine that, the mother seeing her son um, and knowing that she couldn't, couldn't take him. And the father cries out, have pity on thy son. And then the governor who was standing nearby urged her to, to pity the father. But nonetheless, she confessed her faith. And together, all the martyrs were sentenced to be devoured by wild beasts. And St. Perpetua says they all returned to their prison cell joyfully. And that's a, a beautiful thought. Now, turning to St. Felicity, she was eight months pregnant. And she was a slave, as, as you mentioned earlier. She was eight months pregnant. And the Roman law was that you could not put someone to death who was um, who was pregnant, expecting a child. Now this is, I was thinking of this, that even the Romans, with all of their vices that they had in those times, and they had plenty of vices. I mean, the fact that they would go to the Colosseum to watch bloodshed and to enjoy seeing it shows you how low they were even they would recognize that it was unjust to kill uh, someone who was pregnant because you would kill the baby in the womb. And that should tell us pretty much where we are in relation to the Romans, that if they, as low as they are, could recognize that you don't do that, how low is the world today that can, can abort so many babies? And uh, it's truly a, a something worth thinking about. But, the Roman law was that, they, and they would not put uh, St. Felicity to death um, because she was expecting it. She became sad at that. She was actually sad, the thought that she might not be put to death because of this. And um, her fellow martyrs felt bad for her as well. And St. Perpetua says that they didn't want to lose such a good companion in, in their martyrdom. So they all prayed that she would deliver her, her child. And no sooner did they finish their prayer than St. Felicity began giving birth. And I think this is a, a beautiful thing too, her response to what the jailer said, that when she was experiencing the pains of childbirth, uh, she let out a, you know, a groan of pain and then the jailer starts picking on her. Well, if you can't endure this, how are you going to endure being eaten and devoured by these wild beasts? 
And then she said something which was very profound. She said that um, now it is I alone who suffers, but there in the arena, there will be another in me who will suffer for me because I shall be suffering for him. So she trusted in that, that grace and the strength that, that our Lord would give her. And that was her answer. And it must have made the jailer think. But uh, then, so she delivered the baby and was allowed now to go and receive her martyrdom to die for, for her God. So the, the day came and it says that their faces were beaming with joy. The thought that today, not tomorrow, today, they would see God. And um, they would see God face to face for all eternity. And it begins today. What a thought. I mean, um, so they, they came out, faces just beaming with joy. And they were passing through the crowd. You can imagine any of us, we'd be shaking, we'd be so nervous. It says that St. Perpetua kept her composure, eyes cast down, and as if not even really noticing anything. Well, the the martyrs were each put in with certain wild animals. The men were put in with leopards and, and wild boars and, and things like that. The leopards actually killed one of the men. They said that was a very gruesome death, very bloody. And then Saints Perpetua and Felicity were put in with a, um, a wild a cow. And it's... it's St. Perpetua went into a, a sort of ecstasy at this point, which was interesting. She was attacked first by the cow. She was thrown way into the air. And when she hit the ground, says that her first thought was to fix her dress for modesty's sake. That was it. Not the pain, but she would fix her dress. And then what was even more interesting fix her hair. But why fix her hair? They say that because she was, it was not fitting for someone who was going to, to be a martyr to be so focused on the pain. And that was proof that for the martyrs, they endure their pain. And sure, it's painful, everything they have to endure. But for them, it's not the, it's, it's, um, that's a small price to pay. And I think that was it. But that shows that the pain that she was enduring was very little because she knew the reward that was awaiting her. But it, it mentions that fact that she fixed her dress first, then she fixes her hair, and she gets up, and her, her other first thought is not for herself or her own safety, but to help St. Felicity. So she wanders over, picks her up, and... That's it. But it says the crowd had pity on them. So the, these two ladies were led out of the arena to a certain gate. And then it hits her, Perpetua. She comes out of her ecstasy. She's still waiting for the cow to attack her. Um, and so, as you mentioned, it makes you wonder what in the world she was seeing in her ecstasy that made her realize to make 
that the she didn't even notice she was attacked by that wild cow. So far, far be it for me to, to be that profound. I was only wondering it because it's something that I read that St. Augustine had wondered himself. He wrote several sermons on, um, on saints uh, perpetual infelicity. And in, in one of them, he, he writes, where wast thou that thou didst not feel the goading of that furious beast asking when it was to be as though it had not been? Where wast thou? What, what didst thou see that made, made thee see not this? On um, what was thou feasting that made thee dead to sense? What was the love that absorbed? What was the sight that distracted? What was the chalice that inebriated thee? And yet the ties of flesh were still holding thee. The claims of death were still upon thee. And the corruptible body was still waiting, weighing thee down. She doesn't, didn't even know that it hadn't happened. or that it, She didn't know that it had already happened. And St. Augustine wonders, and I do too, um, what was she seeing if it wasn't her being gored by this wild cow? I mean, what was she experiencing at, at that moment? Truly, it truly makes you wonder. Um, truly does. But God will always give you the strength you need to get through all of this. But one final thought, just to, to tell you how they ended up, with their uh, with their death was that they were eventually led back into the arena and sentenced to die by the sword so the men were taken care of first and then it says that the executioner the swordsman was a sort of rookie he was a newbie at this so he came to saint perpetua and stabbed her clear through in the ribs. And all it says in, in this um, narration of everything that happened in this uh, martyrdom, she let out a slight groan. And then she takes the sword and she pulls it to her, to her throat and says to the jailer, I think this is where you want to get me to, to put me to death. And that was it. The sword went through the throat, a very gruesome way to die. But she she died for for the love of her God and Savior, and that was it. From then on, her longing was over. That longing that we're talking about from for Septuagesima, her longing is over. And now she's singing that eternal Alleluia uh, forever before the face of God. So um, uh, truly, a, a beautiful saint for um, for the season of Septuagesima. It's rare, it's rare that we get. To that we have a martyrdom which speaks so much of, of kind of a manly virtue um, when you have um, a noble woman and, uh, and, and a slave woman. I mean, this is, this is something which is, um, which is remarkable. I mean, it's, it's, it's encouraging to, to women. It's, it should be particularly instructive to men. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, the greatness of their example written by uh, church fathers, but um, for the very fact, I mean, these, these are two saints which are, who are mentioned in the canon of every mass. Um, I, I suspect that uh, learning some about their, their martyrdom would, would, would lead us to, to a clear possible reason why they're, why they're in there in the first place. Um, just to one last little, little tidbit um, they were actually martyred on on March the seventh, but their feast day is is a 
is a day before that. And so you have the church. It almost seems like there was a little tug of war here in terms of who's going to be on which day. It seems like for their greatness, saints perpetual and felicity who are mentioned in the canon of the mass um, seem to have lost out on, on a feast day on which they were actually martyred. But who's there? Well, our own St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor. and um, who, who didn't die a martyr's death, but died on the 7th of March. Died, he did die on the 7th of March on his way to um, good counsel. And it's, by the way, I wonder if this is part of the reason, because he gave the church so much of his wisdom. And in fact, along with the Bible, at, at many of the councils, I believe the Summa Theologica that he wrote is placed on the altar as well. Uh, so that shows the um, the esteem that the church has for his writing. So it's, it, in a way, not a wonder why he was chosen for March 7th. And Saints Perpetua and Felicity had to um, be humble and and give way to the angelic doctor, which I'm sure they didn't mind in, in the least. But Well, you definitely get a sense of, of, of the church recognizing different types of excellence in, in, in her saints. Mm-hmm. I mean, St. Thomas um, didn't die a martyr's death. Um, he's not mentioned in the canon of the Mass, and yet his is the feast day that's celebrated on, on the 7th when saints Felicity and Perpetuum were were martyred. I, I guess the church is so replete with, 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 with saints that um, those difficult choices are, are have probably been made throughout the whole of, of church history. Uh, saints, if you look through the history of the liturgical calendar, you see saints are, are kind of bumping one another out of particular days mm-hmm. and pushing other saints over. And um, it's it's fascinating the the organic development of the calendar, and in particular with, with two so remarkable saints. So these um, being displaced by um, uh, yet an equally but differently remarkable saint, such as St. Thomas Aquinas. Any final thoughts, Father? No, just, just this, that for all of you listeners to remember um, the purpose of the liturgy. Uh, we're starting this a new year of the liturgical year show, and it's important to remember that it's not just a bunch of pious thoughts put together, but a way of life should be a way of life for us and a way to develop the spirit of Christ in our own lives. There's no better way to do it than this. And so let's all start with, um, with this Septuagesimatide and develop the spirit. Read about it. Read the history of it. You can find a lot of it on the Internet, in the liturgical year, in your missiles. Oftentimes there's a little story or history of it and the purpose behind it. So read those things, know all about these things, and above all, put it into practice during these times. As we close out this episode, having covered Septuagesima and Septuagesimatide and the feasts of Saints Perpetua and Felicity, I, I want to thank Father McGuire for his time and being with us in this episode. Thank you, Father. You're quite welcome. We'll talk to you again next month, Father, as we continue this series, and and God bless you. If you have any questions for Father McGuire or feedback on this episode, which we would greatly appreciate, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact us at liturgicalyear at truerestoration.org.
We'll pass along your questions to Father. We'd also like to take this moment to remind you that all of your correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Make it possible. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is your prayer. Please think of offering a mass or a rosary or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm Joshua Guncher. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.